Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's taken the time to listen to this podcast so far. But if I could just ask one small favour. If you're enjoying the episodes, please can you rate the podcast and leave a small review. This will help so much in spreading the word about it to others. And if you aren't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get a notification as soon as a new episode is released. As always, thank you so much for lending me your ears. It really is appreciated. My guest this week is Peter Dalton, or as you might know him by his professional name, Mr. Jam. Alongside being a popular broadcaster, DJ, producer, and songwriter, he's also father to Olivia, Benjamin, and Phoebe, and his husband to Claire. I've known Mr. Jam professionally through our work in the music industry for over a decade now, and I've always been quietly intrigued by how he manages what is a very busy diary alongside being a dad. So this was a conversation I was very much looking forward to having, and wow, it didn't disappoint. We spoke about how growing up as an only child in the late 80s, in the not greatest of circumstances, shaped his early years and character. How a chance meeting with Claire sparked a friendship that blossomed into their current relationship. The personal adjustments he's had to make in his life to be a much better father. And we also spoke about his youngest daughter's entrance into the world and why it's maybe not the most conventional birth story. I absolutely loved this conversation, and I know you guys are going to love it too. There were simply times where after Mr. Jam spoke, I had no words. So here it is, episode eight of the Diary of a Dad podcast with my good friend, Mr. Jam. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm really good, Ben. How are you? I'm very, very well. I feel like this conversation is so long overdue. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Very, very much so. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. And it also, I was saying before, it feels very weird. It feels like the, the script has been flipped and I'm going to be firing <laughs> questions your way, whereas you're normally the person that does that. So yeah, this is going to be a, an interesting one, I think. Yeah. I'm bracing myself. I'm bracing myself. But do you know what? It's 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 really cool to be able to speak to you, and I I love what you've built, and I love what you're continuing to build as a a safe space for for, for kind of for parents. Really, I, I love it. It's really, 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 really cool. So thank you for having me. No worries at all. Appreciate you you being part of it, and and I think let's get straight into it. You know, we're going to cover quite a few things. Um, there's a lot to talk about in this. I'm really interested. One of the first things is kind of just exploring people's backgrounds and understanding, you know, how did upbringing have an impact in terms of, you know, the type of father that they are today. So take me way back, back to the beginning and give us just a little bit of an insight into uh, into what life was like for a young Peter Dalton. <laughs> uh, well, I was I was born in uh, in the 80s in in Nottingham. Which um, the the local radio station used to refer to as the world's best sitter. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if I know I know that you're a West Midlander, so I know that that's probably a little bit upsetting for you, but never mind. Just a bit. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm from a part of Nottingham. Was born and raised in a part of Nottingham that um, 
was predominantly white uh, to begin with. So from a part of Nottingham called Arnold. Um, and up until the age of five, I'm an only child. Uh, it was me, my mum and my dad. Um, my dad is uh, Irish. Uh, my mum's mixed race. And there was a lot of racism, a lot of racism when I was young. Um, up until the age of five, some of my earliest memories are um, having my little Fisher-Price record player and playing music by myself. And the next door neighbours shouting kind of racist abuse through the window. Um, and it was, it was really quite hard, you know, one of, to have, you know, your earliest memories kind of marred by some extreme racism. And where, where I grew up in the, the early part of my childhood, you'd kind of walk to the end of the road where I lived. We lived on a, a council estate, but we were lucky because we had a garden. You walk to the end of my road and, you know, that's where like the East Midlands headquarters of the National Front were. That's where, you know, okay. what, what became the BNP were based. So it wasn't the most, should we say, diverse start to, to, to my upbringing. Um, but I had grandparents that lived in much more diverse parts of Nottingham. So uh, my granddad lived in a part of Nottingham called St. Anne's. So we'd spend time there. Uh, my grandma lived in another part of, of Nottingham called Radford. We spent time there and those parts were, were a lot more kind of racially diverse and, and, you know, very working class areas, all of them, but um, where they lived was a lot more racially diverse. And then all came to a head when I was five. Um, we'd got in touch with the police about the racism. There was nothing that they say that, that they said that they would do unless my mum joined the special constabulary, at which point they could potentially do something. But if she didn't do that, then there was nothing that they could do. And it ended up with a fight with my mum and the next door neighbours. She ended up kind of having a fight with, with three women next door. And the next thing you know, we've moved. Uh, so we moved to uh, a place called Bestwood Park. And that's kind of where I spent the rest of my childhood. As I say, an only child. Uh, I went to um, the local Catholic school um, because my parents thought that it would be a better upbringing for me uh, and a better schooling. For me and it was really cool because in one way it allowed me to kind of interact with lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds you know there was a lot more like I say I'm from a working class area uh, but there was a lot more kind of middle class people or the working class people um, you know um, for a very long time I was the only black kid in that school in the primary school at least um, uh, there was one black girl that was in the year above me so again, you know, there was a lot of racism there, a lot, mm. uh, um, you know, and, and I remember a conversation with one of the teachers in primary school where they didn't quite understand why it wouldn't be okay for me to be referred to as the black kid, whereas right. I was, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of nice late 80s, you know, casual racism. Um, and then... <laughs> We'd moved to Bestwood Park. I, uh, I went to uh, the, the Catholic secondary school that was the feeder school from the primary school, and that was a lot more diverse. But again, lots of different kinds of backgrounds because it was uh, a denominational school. So you have got right. people that came from the really quite, you know, posh parts of Nottingham and then me. Uh, at the same time, um, I'd started to go to this thing called the Central Junior Television Workshop, um, which if you've ever watched anything that Shane Meadows has ever done, 
pretty much the entire cast came from the workshop, apart from me, <laughs> of, of, my, of my generation um, that went through the workshop. I'm literally the only person that wasn't in a Shea Meadows production, which is fair enough because I'm nowhere near as good as the rest of the people that were in my generation. You know, people like Vicky McClure uh, and Perry Fitzpatrick and, you know, loads of people who have gone on to do massive, yeah. massive things as actors. But that, again, gave me an opportunity to interact with lots of different kinds of people. It gave me the opportunity to kind of talk to different kinds of people and develop relationships and also learn how to communicate with different kinds of people. And, and it was from there that I kind of, I realized that my love and passion wasn't necessarily acting, although I enjoyed acting and I enjoyed, you know, what we learned at the, at the workshop. I'll be honest with you, Ben, I, was, I wasn't good enough. I absolutely wasn't good enough, but my passion was music. So at, at the age of 14, I discovered that there was a, a, a youth club in a part of Nottingham called Heisen Green. That's again, a very diverse working class area. Uh, called, and they did a program called DARK, which stood for Drugs Awareness, Reality and Knowledge. And what they would do is you enrolled in this course. It was you know, a 12-week course. And it was partially funded by the local government and you had to do drugs awareness. Um, there was black history. And if you did well in drugs awareness and black history, you got access to the recording studio that was at the back of the youth club. So of course I'm going there, I'm doing my <laughs> drugs awareness, I'm, I'm doing my black history, which I absolutely loved both of them. Um, but it allowed me to get into the, the recording studio and it was there that I learned how to DJ. It was there that I started to learn how recording studios work. I started to make music there. I learned how to work a mixing desk. I learned how to stripe a tape, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the guy that ran that, his brother ran another community recording studio in St. Anne's that was literally down the road from where my granddad lived. So I kind of, I'd spend the week going between school, uh, the television workshop, um, the Heisen Green Youth Club, and the Acne Centre in, in St. Anne's where there was the other recording studio and just trying to learn my trade and trying to figure out what it is that I could possibly do. So for me, my whole kind of childhood was really trying to focus in on what it is that I could potentially do to change my situation, what it is that I could do to get out of the house, what it is that I could do to kind of make something of myself. And, and the fact that, you know, Samantha Morton, who is an amazing actress, um, she was a good few years above me in the television workshop and I'd seen her be able to go off and become this amazing actress. I remember way back in the day, she was in this K-Mella TV program called Band of Gold and seeing that and going, okay, so it is possible for someone to come from where I come from to actually go and make something of themselves. Mm. That really gave me, I don't know, the impetus to really kind of click and, and, and figure out what it is that I could potentially do. And in a and nutshell, that's kind of my childhood. <laughs> what a whirlwind. I mean, you know, so much covered there. And, and I think that bit that you mentioned at the end is kind of maybe what stands out to me the most is you, there was all that adversity, you know, the racism, the stuff that you were experiencing that clearly was, you know, probably having a, a well, I imagine having a very negative impact on you, but you just looking for this way out and, and trying to, figure this this whole thing out and i think that's re the reason i say that's really interesting is because i think that there's things you've mentioned in that conversation like the youth work you know the places that you could go 
the family that you've got around you, you know, grandparents that were there to, you know, sort of bring you in when you needed to. And all of that, it just, it's so important, isn't it? When it comes to, you know, a childhood. Um, yeah. And at the time you don't realize that because you're just Not at all. living it. And, yeah. you know, that's your reality. That's, that's your experience. I think the uh, thing as well for me is that, you know, I think it'd be fair to say that my family was quite dysfunctional um, right. in, in, in a few different ways. Um, but what I had was I had, you know, my dad had lost his leg um, when I was six months old. And because he'd lost his leg um, in, in, in the circumstances that he'd lost his leg, it meant that he had some compensation. Right. So it meant that, you know, we were very lucky because, you know, we were able to buy our house. You know, mm. this was mm. kind of, like I say, late eighties where you could buy, you know, a former council house. And I was able to kind of, I was able to have trinkets. You know, I was able mm. to have things that allowed me to focus and try and do something. You know, I was, like I say, I was, I'm very, very grateful that I had a computer that meant that I could figure out what this thing called the internet was, you know, mm. windows 95, I was on it trying to dial up internet. I was on it. You know, <laughs> the, the, the turntables that I ended up getting when I really first started, it was a really horrible kind of crappy all in one mobile DJ system. But mm. you know, I was able to get that and spend yeah. time on that. And, you know, you can see records in the background. These are records that I've collected and nicked uh, over the, <laughs> over the, literally from the age of two. The first record that I was able to get was, was at the age of two. And while there was a lot of stuff that was happening within my family that wasn't, shall we say, the healthiest place for, mm. for someone to grow up in. And then you lump on top of that, the kind of the socioeconomic situation that meant that, you know, racism was as prevalent as it was. There wasn't a lot of hope, you know, for, for, for young working class kids in Nottingham. There wasn't a lot other than there was the community projects. Yeah. There were the places you could go to a youth club and you could go and do stuff and it didn't cost you any money. There was the television workshop that I could go to that I say, you know, it's had a massive impact on my life and innumerable, you know, British actors that are out there implying their trade and people that didn't even go into the industry. It helped us immeasurably. It didn't cost us a penny. Mm. So for me, it was, you know, being an only child, very lonely childhood, a very, very, very lonely child. Mm. Um, you know, as I say, with the dysfunction that was in the family, it meant that I didn't really have a great relationship with cousins didn't really have a great relationship with half of the family, but you know, the, the, the people that were around me, I'm, I'm very grateful that they were and the opportunities that I had at that young age, coupled with my drive and passion has meant that, you know, I'm, I'm able to be here right now. Yeah. And again, just so much that I think now as parents, we sort of look back on those times, don't we? And you sort of look at that and you go, you, I suppose you almost think, how on earth did I make it, make it through? Because, you know, it, it, it's almost like the odds were stacked against you, um, mm. you know, as you say, but it, it just, those few defining moments, few key individuals, you suddenly start to realize, you know, just how important that family unit really is. And 
obviously we're going to get into this, you know, and, and talk about sort of your current family setup and, and situation. But I do just, I, the reason I'm so fascinated is because when you hear stories like that, you just think that's got to have had an impact on, you know, how you're raising your family and, you know, the yeah. decisions that, that that you're making. So we, we sort of, I feel like we got to maybe sort of like your, your, your teenage years there. Yes. Um, and, you know, you, you're in secondary school, you, you've done all of, all of that sort of thing. The love of, of music and, and DJing is definitely there, but that's, that's coming through. So let's jump forward a little bit then to the point where you meet Claire. How does that whole thing happen? <laughs> so with the with the acting side of things, um, when I was 18, I managed to kind of get a role in a daytime TV soap. Right. That was great. Uh, that ran for a year. Um, and it was a great opportunity. From that, I was able to get a TV agent or an acting agent because it felt like acting might be the thing that I could do. Mm. At the same time, I was working in the recording studio that I'd learned my trade in. I was a, a youth worker and a tutor at that same time. Um, but what happened was is that my agent after the, the the TV soap thing kind of looked like it was about to end, phoned me up and said, can you sing? So I can carry a tune. said, well, there's an audition for a West End musical. So cut a very long story short, I got a part in this West End musical, moved down to London thinking that my life's going to change. Um, it didn't. The musical closed uh, quite early. I um, ended up being in a lot of debt in London by myself. And had to move back to Nottingham and try and get a day job. Uh, at that point, I dropped out of my A-levels to take this job on TV. So I didn't really have any formal qualifications behind me other than my GCSEs. Um, I'd spent this, you know, three years of just experiences of being, you know, as a, a performer and an actor and still trying to DJ in the background and do all this kind of stuff and start to put on like events and, and all this kind of stuff, which was an amazing opportunity. But it did mean that, you know, I was the the 21 year old that was back at home, tail firmly between his legs with mm -hmm. his kind of his big dream failed. So I ended up getting a job at a credit card company and I worked on the phones on the credit card company selling loans. So basically what we do is we call up existing customers that have got a massive balance, sell them a loan to consolidate their balance, sell them loan protection insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and then kind of, you know, that's, that was our job. And the very first day that I walked in to that day job, um, there was a lot of kind of kerfuffle in the office when I walked in for the first day of training because I'd been on the TV. And there was this one girl that came up to me and said, uh, "Oi." Were you Minty on Crossroads? <laughs> that was Claire. Oh, <laughs> so she was she was literally the only person that was uh, that had the the cojones, shall we say, to approach me and ask me the question. And from that point onwards, we became really, really, really good friends. Like really, really, really good friends. And for me, you know, trying to work on my music career at that point, you know, putting on events in Nottingham with friends, trying to work on my radio career that I'd started before, you know, I'd done the acting job. Um, and it all kind of culminated in 2005, getting a job with the BBC. And 2005, Claire and I's friendship just turned into a relationship, which was amazing. <laughs> 
Amazing. The <laughs> literally has- the best thing that could have ever happened. <laughs> the way that story was going, I thought she was going to be like the first customer that you called. And <laughs> you, I thought you were going to so- sell her some more loans and then she got into massive debt and then you had to go and save her or something like that. But <laughs> literally, you're, you're- <laughs> literally the other way around. It was her that had to save me from the massive amount of debts that I got myself into. <laughs> Amazing. It's, um, oh, well, what a, you know, what a nice, I love those sort of just organic stories, you know, that, you know, if she hadn't come up and asked you that question that day, you know, who knows what, what yeah. may or may not have happened. If my acting so. career hadn't gone down the toilet, I wouldn't have been there. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's that's why yeah. I'm very, very, I'm, well, the way that I look at my life is that I am so grateful for everything that happened because mm. if it isn't a blessing, it's a lesson. And yeah. if it if it's a lesson, then it's a blessing. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. No, when you no, look no. at, when I look at things like that, I should never, I I could never have met her. Yeah. And Claire is is the greatest thing that's ever happened to my life, if I'm really honest. Yeah, I know. And you've spoken very openly about that. And I think that, yeah, that's, it's, it's just an amazing, an amazing story that has continued because of where, yeah. you, you, where you guys are now today. And, and I think, again, you know, we talked about that early adversity and then even to go through that, because I suppose for a lot of people, when they experience, you know, any amount of, whether it's, fame, fortune, success, whatever it is, for that to kind of be taken away. I mean, I know a lot of people that are struggling because even over the last couple of years with everything that we've been through, you know, they were flying high before lockdown and before COVID came along. And then, you know, it's almost set them back a couple of years and Mm. struggling to keep that momentum going. So I think people, we can't really underestimate just how negative an impact that could have been for you. but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I feel like it touches on, on something that we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later. <laughs> so you and you and Claire are obviously now, so you're together and mm-hmm. the relationship is, is is blossoming. I always ask people this because only because I don't remember having this specific conversation with Sophie. But when you guys were together and you could tell that the relationship's getting more and more serious, did you have a conversation about kids and whether you wanted kids? Yes. Yes, you remember, we did. You remember, okay, so we, and how were you both on the same page with that? No, firmly <laughs> not. So, because I'm an only child, and like I say, my my childhood was it was dysfunctional and lonely and traumatic in a large mm. number of ways. And you know, I've I've had a lot of help to be able to say it in the way that I can say it quite matter of factly now. Mm, mm. But because of it, I thought, what when I when I have kids, there is no way that I'm having an only child. Absolutely no way whatsoever. So I was in my head going, well, I want to have at least seven kids. <laughs> Just seven. <laughs> Just seven. I mean, I'm not quite there with the five that you've got now, Ben. <laughs> but I was like, I, I, want, I want to have seven kids. And Claire, was, Claire is the eldest of four. Okay. So Claire in her head's like, no, I want to have one. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you guys have got a meet in the middle somehow. That yeah. was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, funny enough, it was after um, after Ben, my son, was born, our second child, that we were like, maybe we're done now. <laughs> Both of us were like, yeah, maybe we're done now. I, that that idea of seven kids had firmly got out the window for me. But that, it was really cool because both of us were interested in having kids. And, mm. you know, as I say, Claire is the eldest of four. So, you know, her maternal instinct kicked in quite, quite young because it's very hard for you to be, as, as I've now learned, without having any siblings myself, mm. if, it's very hard for you to be the eldest sibling and not have to step in at certain points to kind of help. And yeah. she definitely did as a child. And, you know, when I, 
when I talk to her sisters about how Claire was as a kid, it's pretty much how she is now as an adult. Right. The boss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she handles things. I mean, yeah. I, I, I've been dealing with her on email and I knew that she was the person that was just going to like get, the, get this done, make sure it happens, you know, so I, 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 can, I can definitely see that. Um, okay. And so that, that's, that's good because then you guys, I suppose at least you're on the same page in terms of, of a family. But because you, so was, was Claire at this point, you obviously you work together now in the business as in you, your career and, and things like that. Has that always been the case when, you know, from when you've really started to take things seriously? So like the BBC and stuff like yeah. that, has Claire been behind the scenes working with you on that? She's literally been there since day zero. Right. Um, okay. You know, when I was putting on events with friends in Nottingham and, and losing money on it just to try and get myself DJ gigs, she would come, mm. um, you know, when I got the job with the BBC, I remember the first person that I told was her because, you know, we still worked together. And for the first year that I was at the BBC, I still had that day job. Yeah. But for the first two years that I was there, I still had that day job. So we still worked together in, in the day job and I kind of, I go off at night. Um, the way that it would work is that, you know, we would, she would tour manage me. So mm. I'd have DJ gigs and we'd drive there together. I had this residency uh, in Newcastle um, at a club night called Love Doe. Uh, which was a very seminal club night in, in Newcastle. Much love to Matt it's almost like and a, the entire crew. A, a rite of passage if you're anywhere up in Newcastle. Oh, 100%. 100%. So what had happened is, is that we'd, we'd both do, you know, a day in the office at the credit card company. We'd, you know, live between my parents' house and her dad's house. She lived in Leicester or her dad lived in Leicester. I lived in Nottingham. So we'd live between those two places. We didn't really have a place of our own. So we'd go back to whichever base we were in at that point of the week, get ready. I would drive up to Newcastle. I'd go and do the gig. It would be an entire night. So I'd play from start to finish. She would sleep in the car. At the end of the gig at 2 a.m., I'd get in the car. She'd wake up. She'd drive us back to Nottingham. We'd have enough time to be able to have a shower. And then we'd go back to work. And wow. we did this, like I say, for years um, with radio. She would, you know, on the Thursday night, it was an overnight show and then it was a Friday night show. So I'd do on the Thursday, come home from the day job, get myself ready, drive myself down to London or get the train to London, do the overnight show, get the train back to Nottingham, do a day in the office at the, at the credit card <laughs> company. And then she'd drive me down to London. She would sleep in like the breakout area near the studios and uh, she'd then drive us back. And that's, that's how life was. Literally, yeah. that's how life was. And like I say, when I say she's been there since day zero, she did that right up until the second trimester of her pregnancy for our first child. Yeah. Like that's, that's when I got a, a professional tour manager, when she was, <laughs> when she was physically incapable she, of being able to do it. <laughs> yeah, when she literally <laughs> couldn't, couldn't do any more. Um, <laughs> Again, you know, fascinating just, and I think that's so important that sometimes that people hear those side of things because I've, I've wanted to speak to people in the world of music and business and entertainment and sports. And it, in, for the most part, it's very, very glamorous. You know, the stuff that people see that, you know, the people on stage, the people DJing in clubs, you know, businesses making hell of a lot of money. But I just feel like sometimes we don't even talk about those things that go on behind the scenes. No. And you know, it's, it's that cliche thing of 
you know, it looks like someone's just come out of nowhere and, you know, you hear those overnight successes. And then when you start actually talking to them, you're like, yeah, do you know, this is 10 years in the making. Or, <laughs> you know, in some cases, even longer, you know, there's, there was a lot going on before it, it got to that stage. So I, I love hearing, I love hearing stories, stories like that. So you guys, you fall pregnant and that's with your eldest daughter, Olivia. Yes. Do you remember what it was like when you first found out that you were going to become a dad? Absolutely. Absolutely. So <laughs> we got married. We got married in 2009. Um, I, I proposed to her when our first holiday together in Cuba in 2006. Uh, she right. managed to book this lastminute.com when lastminute.com <laughs> was a thing. Holiday. And I ended up proposing to her on the holiday because we, we ended up with a 24-hour delay at the airport. And there was a newlywed Irish couple. And I was seeing the way that the husband of this newlywed Irish couple was talking about his wife. And I realized that I felt the exact same way about Claire. Right. So while I was in the airport, I texted her dad for permission. Amazing. And he said it would be an honor to have you as a son-in-law. <laughs> uh, so I proposed to her on that, on that, on that um, holiday. And it took us three years to actually get married. In that three years, we'd bought a, we'd bought a house together. Well, we'd, we'd moved from Nottingham and Leicester to Northampton because I went five, day, uh, five days a week on, on the radio, which meant that, you know, I needed to be in London. So mm. that was at the point where I was able to give up the day job. Claire kept it on for a while and she kind of, she was commuting to and from. Uh, but, you know, we'd moved to Northampton. We'd, we'd got a flat. We'd been able to buy a house. We got married. And, you know, I remember literally on, on the wedding day, people were going, oh, we'll, we'll give you six months. What do you mean you would give you six, give six months before you have a kid? <laughs> Claire and I were like, no, we're going to really enjoy just being a married couple and life is great. You know, we had a dog, everything was cool. It was all settled. Uh, and then the, the, the weirdest thing with Claire is that both Claire and I love tea. We love a cup of tea. Like it's, 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 very, I think my love of tea comes from her. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing that happens if Claire's pregnant is she goes off tea. So this is something that we've been able to figure out with the the, the, the pregnancies afterwards. If she goes off tea, we're like pregnancy test. Yeah, <laughs> but I remember literally she went off tea and she felt ill, and I just got this feeling that she was pregnant. And I remember I was in bed. It was a Saturday morning. She'd gone and done this pregnancy test, and she came in and she said, "You're going to be a dad," and I thought. Yes. Uh, no. <laughs> like I was very, I'm very, very, very excited. I think, you know, like I say, because of my childhood, I really wanted to be a, a, a dad. I really wanted to, I really wanted to, to build a family around me, which is something that I never felt that I had as a child. Yeah. And I wanted to, to be able to give my own child this kind of, this love that I, I, really wanted to share with a child. So I was very, very excited, but I was also really reluctant because, you know, there were, there were a few, there were a few kind of examples from my childhood where I could say, this is how a functional family unit works. Yeah. This is, this is, you know, what good parenting looks like. This is how it feels. You know, there were friends that were around or whatever, but that was never really my full experience as a child. So, of course, immediately there was a load of fears that crept in. But that, you know, when my daughter was born, that was just 
an absolute. I, I will never forget when we were we were driving to Bedford Hospital because Claire <laughs> Claire wanted a water birth, and the nearest place to us that could allow a water birth was Bedford Hospital. I remember Plan B was on the radio, and we pulled up, and it was just supposed to be a checkup because Claire was overdue, um, and they said this baby's coming now. And Claire went into the toilet and this thing came out of the toilet that was no longer Claire. It was just this, this <laughs> machine that was ready to give birth. And uh, Olivia was born to the sounds of Adele's 21 album um, oh. about six hours later. Oh, amazing. A lovely story. Again, music just kind of, it's just ingrained. <laughs> it was just meant to be. There was, there's all, you guys have always got like a soundtrack or something that's, <laughs> that's guiding the, the key defining moments. I have I, memories that are logged because of music. Because I don't know why, music. but that's the way my brain works. Yeah, no, I, I get it completely. And, and I think, I mean, it sounds there as though when, when you were going through that pregnancy, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Let me ask you that. When you were going through that first pregnancy with Olivia, you mentioned sort of the fears that you were having relating to your childhood, et cetera. Was there anyone that you were talking to at that stage about, you know, what was coming and, you know, what to expect? Cause you know, some people would be like, Oh yeah, I spoke to my brother or my sister. Obviously you were an only child or, you know, there might be other friends that were having kids at that time. What was that like for, for you? Who were you talking to about it? Well, we, because we're the eldest couple in the family. Um, we didn't have any kind of, any of Claire's siblings that we could talk to. I, you know, I, I, I don't really have a, a, a relationship with my cousins, um, but mm. I did have kids before um, a, a lot of my cousins. Um, there was my older cousin from, from London who had already had a child, but we weren't really talking at that point. The relationship had broken down at that point. So really I was relying a lot on, you know, I, I, I did speak to my dad. I did speak to my dad. I still spoke to my parents at that point. We still had a, a kind of a relationship at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the time I was talking to Claire's dad right. because, you know, as I say, he, he, he was the father of four girls. Right. You know, he, he, he had it tough yeah. <laughs> <laughs> being the father of four girls. So I was talking to him. Um, there was a lot of colleagues at work as well. I remember DJ Semtex giving me some great parenting advice. Mm. Um, you know, again, it's weird because when I look back, you know, I was for a very long time, I was the youngest. So with, with, um, the kind of the, the crew that I was hanging around at the youth club, the, the kind of the people that I started my DJ career with, the people that I was, you know, trying to continue my DJ career with around music, I was the youngest uh, at the television workshop. I kind of hung around with the guys that were older than me. So I was the youngest there. Um, but then it kind of creeps upon you that you are actually the, the oldest of the crew. So mm. we were the first, you know, there's still baby clothes that are being handed down within the family that we bought for <laughs> Olivia, you know, yeah. nearly 12 years ago or 12, over 12 years ago. Now I've got to check myself. Uh, but yeah, it's just, there wasn't that much. I remember spending time on the internet trying to figure out, you know, what does a dad do? Mm. What does a dad look like? My childhood experience was, is that, you know, there was food in the fridge, the electricity was always on, and that was it. So I kind of thought, okay, I've probably got to step up and I've got to make sure that there's food in the fridge, the electricity is always on, there's clothes for her back, there's stuff mm -hmm. that she can do. So I 
I threw myself into work, if I'm honest. I thought that's, that's what I need to do. I've got to mm. throw myself into work. And, you know, that's where for me, the work ethic really stepped up. I didn't say no to a gig. If a gig came in, I'd go and do it. And that really kind of continued, um, you know, throughout Olivia's first few years up until her brother was born. And then that kind of really continued as well when, when Ben was born. And, and I, I just kind of had this sense of what, what I have to do is I have to go out. I have to earn. I need to make hay while the sun shines. I need to make sure that there's food in the fridge, the lights are on, they've got clothes on their back. Mm. And if I'm really honest, I think that, you know, one of my biggest regrets of early fatherhood is I was proud and I was involved and I was there as much as I could be, but I think I worked too much. I think there was mm. one too many of those kind of moments that I could have been there for, but I was working for. Mm. And I've always got that sense when you've, you've, you've touched on things online, you know, the odd Instagram caption here and there that, that I've seen. And I've, I've always sensed that that was the thing that for you, and I suppose the, the nature of your work when, when you're flying high as a, as a DJ, cause that's essentially, you know, what, you know, at this point, that's, that's who you are. You are Mr. Jam, not only the radio DJ, but you're out there, you're, you know, you're in the clubs, you're abroad, you're here, you're here, there and everywhere. I suppose there is that very natural feeling that that may not last forever. Yeah. And also knowing what I know about the music industry and, you know, you don't, you don't ever want to appear to be unreliable, for example, you know, um, oh, sorry, I can't come to that because I've got this thing going on. You'll never on. get booked again. <laughs> <laughs> they are natural things that, that you think about. You know, yeah. even as a promoter, there's there's been things that Sophie and I have sort of turned down and you think, oh, will we ever get that opportunity again because we didn't do it that year or, you know, whatever the, the case may be. So I, I, I can fully relate to that. Again, something that I think people sometimes just just don't always uh, appreciate. Um, and... What were those, I mean, sort of what were those early memories? You know, what were the things, I don't want to talk about the things that you weren't around for, but what were the things that you were there for that you kind of really hold quite dear in those, in those early days? Um, I, I mean, I'm very proud to say that all of my children, their first word was, was something me related. So <laughs> <laughs> it was dada or daddy. So yeah, the, the kind of their first words. I was there for their first steps. I was, mm. I was there for their first days of school. Um, and, and, you know, these are all amazing memories. I remember for the first couple of years and you know what, I, I, I do beat myself up about it, but I was, I don't want anyone listening to this to think that I was an absent dad. Cause I absolutely mm. was not in any yeah. way, shape or form. I just, you know, I still think that I could have done more, yeah. but Claire went back to work, um, when Olivia was born. Um, so it was my job to get her ready in the morning. And, you know, I'd, I'd wake her up in the morning. I'd get her ready every morning. I'd make her, she'd want eggs. She'd want scrambled eggs. So I'd make her scrambled eggs and we'd sit there and eat the eggs and I'd do her hair and I'd get her ready and I'd take her to nursery and then I'd go to work. And, you know, those are some amazing memories. So absolute proper, you know, moments that I cherish. And when Claire fell pregnant with, with Ben, I'd love to say that he was 100%, you know, fully planned at that moment. He was planned. We wanted another child, but I think, you know, we fell, she fell pregnant a little bit before we might have planned for her to fall yeah. pregnant. But it was, it was really cool because when she did fall pregnant, 
you know, she, she, it wasn't the easiest pregnancy on her. Um, but you know, she's an absolute fighter. He ended up being a home birth and being able to go and get Ollie from downstairs to bring her upstairs to meet her brother that had just been born. Mm. You know, that's a moment that I'll, I'll always, always cherish. Um, you know, being able to be there for the birth of my first two was absolute amazing moments for me. Um, and yeah, with, with my son, when Ben was born, he was born with initially what were real, quite severe eczema, um, like really, really bad eczema um, as a very, very small baby uh, to the point where we had to wet wrap him. You yeah. know, we ended up having to get a bigger bed so that he would sleep in the bed with us. You know, he was constantly scratching, literally tearing off layers of his skin. Um, you know, he, he ended up being put on prednisolone, which is a, uh, a steroid that meant that, you know, he ended up with what they call moon face. You know, he kind of, he blew up because he was on steroids as a, as a really small child. He um, ended up failing a couple of his early checks because he was too big to be able to move. So he used to bum shuffle around, right. <laughs> he used to bum shuffle himself around. And then we, uh, we went to an allergy specialist because we started to try and wean him and he had this really negative reaction to a cake. Mm. Um, and it turned out that he was, you know, highly allergic to a large number of things. You know, most proteins he was allergic to at that point. The only meat that he could eat was was pork. Um, so, you know, sausages and, and bacon, whatever it was. He was a kid, he was allergic to chicken. He was allergic to fish of wow. all kinds, nuts, peanuts, sesame, you know. So that was a real kind of, that was a real hard period for us because I've got this, this son who, he didn't really take to me um, because Claire was there as his caregiver. You know, Claire... We'd, we'd made the decision for her to, to stay at home with Ben because of his, his medical issues. So, you know, she wasn't really working. So I took it upon myself. I was never asked to, but I took it upon myself to take on more work so mm-hmm. that she didn't have to go back to work. Um, so therefore, you know, Ben never really went to me as a baby. He's going through all of these real, like real tough um, health issues. But, you know, all the way through... It was just the strength of Claire and, you know, just the hope that was there that, that allowed us to, to get through it. And, and to be honest, that's the reason why it took us so long to have a third child. Because, you know, we wanted to make sure that Ben was okay. And, yeah. you know, I'm very happy that, to, to say that he's more than okay now. He's still got, you know, a number of allergies, so he's an EpiPen carrier, but his eczema is cleared up. You know, he's got asthma, but that's controlled. Unfortunately, he inherited his asthma from me, <laughs> but that's controlled, you know, and he's, he's flourishing and developing into an amazing, supremely talented young boy. And, and Olivia is developing into this amazing, supremely talented young girl. And yeah, we, we, we then, we were the family that dropped off Ben for his first day of school and then went straight to the midwife because Claire was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it just, it didn't stop. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't. But do you know what? It's, it's again, I want to keep feeling like I'm saying the same thing, but when I look back over those kind of even just the darkest moments and the, and the real hard points that we had as a family throughout the kind of the early years of, of, of Ben's, you know, of, of the health issues that he had, I'm just so grateful that we had such an amazing support network around us. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that, you know, everything that we learned then was an amazing lesson that we could pass on and take forward. 
Mm. Again, that that's why I said earlier that I think, you know, coming back to that, because support systems have essentially helped you guys, you personally through those early stages. Yeah. Then when you get into a relationship, you had the support system, you know, you were talking to Claire's dad about a lot of those things and, you know, what that would look like. And then now when your parents, obviously, you know, a few years into that parenthood journey, suddenly then you've got another support system, you've got other family, you've got other people that are going through it. So it, it's, I think that's really helpful because one of the things that I notice a lot online, particularly in this parenting space, is that there are a lot of lonely parents mm. i mean social media has kind of given us a bit of an outlet but i always think if someone's prepared to tell me who's essentially a stranger you know their circumstances and and how lonely you know they might be feeling at that time i think you've got to be uh, almost at desperation point to kind of reach out and tell a stranger that and it just makes me think how many people actually have that support around them um, it's it is really really important you know is the old saying about it takes a village to raise a child mm -hmm. and i think that where we are now within society not to kind of get too deep or political or anything like that is that you know it feels like we're quite individualistic and mm -hmm. at the at the point where you've got children you know that's the point where you really need help whether you are a single parent or whether you you know it's a it's a couple or whatever you need help because you do need a break from the children every now and then. You need it for you to be able to be, from what I've learned, to be a healthy parent. You need that break. You need that perspective. You know, if it wasn't for the fact of having the support network around us and having, you know, if I remember correctly, you know, Claire's best friend when we were weaning Ben, we would never have realized he's having an allergic reaction. It's just, you know, because she'd had children before, she's like, that doesn't look right. Let's, you know, do you know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it really is those kind of things. And, you know, for me, there's, there are still a lot of places that you can go. The thing that I'm really, really grateful for is some of the greatest friends that we've got in our lives now are people that we met because we've got kids. Yeah. You know, because we've got kids, because they went to the same nursery, the same school, you know, you develop a friendship and, you know, we really look out for each other. And there's some amazing, amazing people that we wouldn't be where we are in life if it wasn't for them that we've met because of children. So the thing that I would say is that if you are a parent or parents, engage with someone at the, at the school gate, mm. you know, say hello. See, go to the community group that might still exist, go to the library, do this stuff and, and, and make relationships. Don't isolate yourself because you just never know that that kind of, as I say, it takes, takes a village to raise a child and, and we wouldn't be where we are now if it wasn't for that support that we've been able to have. I, I think that's so important. And I think the last couple of years, I suppose this is probably where it's been highlighted to me the most because it's when I've got the most active in this, you know, this parenting space. But obviously going through two years of this lockdown situation and, you know, things like, you know, play schemes or nurseries or, you know, toddler groups that just weren't there. I just, I don't know, I just, sometimes I just think about all of those parents that missed out on those early experiences mm. and it, it must be tough. But, but as you say, I suppose now that we're at that, the other side, it's kind of really just about availing, you know, yourself of, of those opportunities. Whatever's there. I mean, look, it's, it's been really interesting for us because Phoebe is four. So 
the first two and a half so years of her life, all she knew was the house. Mm-hmm. You know, she 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 spent she spent more birthdays in lockdown than she has out out of lockdown. You know, so when I go back to when Ben was a toddler and when Ollie was a toddler, you know, there was the little kickers football group near us there was tumble tots you know there was these things that you that were activities that you could take your toddler to for for bb she wasn't there for that they weren't they weren't there for when she was that age but you know i'm I'm really grateful that you know she's in a she's in a preschool now that is just it's the same preschool that ollie and ben went to it's a brilliant preschool you know claire's on the kind of the board of governors there because (laughs) i keep telling you she's the boss (laughs) I know what it's like when you get when you get involved with all of that stuff. <laughs> but it's it's I think it's important. It no, really yeah. is important. And you know, going back to my childhood and seeing the the kids whose parents were engaged in those kind of things, it was important because if nothing else, it meant that you got an idea of really understanding how the school worked or how yeah. that place worked. And again, you made friends, you made relationships, you developed relationships with other people that are in a similar kind of position to you because you've got kids a similar age. Yeah, I agree. I remember being in secondary school and the only, I had, there was quite a negative connotation with um, parents that were governors because in (laughs) in secondary school, I was, I was appointed as deputy head boy. And why does that not surprise me? (laughs) (laughs) But everyone said to me, the only reason that you didn't get head boy was because the guy who was head boy his mum was on the board of governors and they were like oh that's the only reason that he got I didn't feel any way towards him I I don't think I was necessarily aspiring for it but I just remember thinking oh that's quite a a negative thing so yeah so for me when I I think about that involvement in the school I always remember thinking oh is that something that you know there's like preferential treatment but actually when we started to have our family I remember thinking actually I want to be involved in this I want to understand what's going on at school and if you can in any way influence conversations topics you know things that are going on then that can only be a good thing I realized very quickly I wasn't cut out for it as a parent um I'm very opinionated and sometimes you've got to rein things back in so I wasn't cut out for it but Sophie has now taken up that role of you know she's like the the class rep for a couple of the kids and she's in all the whatsapp groups and she's yeah she she knows how to handle that she knows how to communicate a lot better than me I suppose is the no do you know what I think do you know what you're really right I remember in secondary school for me one of my friends at secondary school his dad was the deputy head you know, and, and there were those negative connotations of, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's because of his dad, it's because of his dad. But at the end of the day, I see it as a parent very differently as I did as a child. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I want, I want to be engaged with the, the places that my kids are going because I want to make sure that what they're getting is amazing. Yes. And I also want to make sure that I have got relationships with parents that have, you know, got kids in the similar kind of class or... Because I think that those are invaluable. You know, when your kids are developing relationships with other people, you kind of want to know where, where they're coming from. You kind of want to know the families that they're coming from. You kind of want to know a little bit more about them. And I don't know whether that's just me trying to be overprotective, but it, it, I think it helps. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I don't think what I'm realizing now as a parent is I don't think you can be too overprotective because I just... <sighs> it's such an important role that we have to play as parents that 
if by asking a few more questions or doing a little bit more research, doing a little bit of digging, just gives you that peace of mind, then that's all we want. And you, as you say, you, we want our kids to thrive. We want them to be sociable. But we just have to also, sadly, in this day and age, just be very, very careful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, do. With, I, with, I, I, I think the thing that I'm kind of dealing with now is because I've got a daughter that's at secondary school mm. is just, and I've got a son that, you know, is, he, he, he loves gaming. Yeah. It's just how many things you've got to be across as a parent now. Yeah. Because there is, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in the news recently about the adultification of, of, of children from certain backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my daughter, she's, she's 11. She'll be 12 in July, but she looks like she could be 15. Mm. And so I've got to be very mindful of the way that the world might treat her compared to where she is, because she is, she's 11. Mm. But, you know, there's a big difference between an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old. Of course. And the pressures that kids are under these days, the more that I feel that I can be involved, the more that they'll let me be involved. And not only that, I want my children to grow up to have a relationship where they can come and talk to me about anything, or at least feel comfortable to come and talk to me about anything. Yeah. I think that for that, I've got to be present. I've got to be involved. I've got to show an interest because I am interested. You know, I've got to, I've got to want to be involved as much as possible because then hopefully, hopefully I can see something that might be coming up that they're not aware of and be able to share with them some of the tips that I've learned from my own personal experience of having been the 11 year old who looked like he was, you know, 18, having been the, the, the kid that was 14 years old, starting his DJ career in professional mm. nightclubs and never being ID'd. Here are some things that you might want to think about. <laughs> yeah. And do you th find that, I mean, do you think you've got that balance right? Because I think sometimes when you've done things or you've been involved with kid things as a child yourself that weren't above board like that example that you just give there <laughs> you then start to i mean do you feel like you're yeah do you feel like you've got a balanced approach with that at the moment with your kids in terms of how you're looking at things do you know what i i think i think it depends on what day you ask <laughs> what day what day you ask what the current situation is what what it's about you know i think the world's changing very very quickly yeah. very quickly. And I know that I sound like an old man when I'm saying this, but it is, it feels it's like reality. it's moving really fast. Yeah. And especially post lockdown, you know, I, I, I'm very careful not to say post pandemic because I'm not 100% convinced that we're currently out of it, but you know. <laughs> when will we ever be? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also the thing, even that, that kind of almost impending sense of doom, that impending sense of paranoia. Mm. And even thinking about it, you know, from a, a child's point of view, like I say, my, my youngest who's four, all she really, you know, knew up until lockdown was eased was staying at home, you know? So then getting her into a space where she's very comfortable going out the house and she's comfortable people leaving and she's comfortable going to places. Luckily, she's got the personality, she's got Claire's personality. Yeah. So she's absolutely fine with it. But thinking about that and thinking about the amount of trauma that our kids have had to go through over the past few years that was out of all of our hands. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, you know, people are craving connection and they're looking for that connection online. And what does that have as an impact to the younger generation? What does that have as an impact to the kids? You know, my kids in particular, 
it's some it's a thought that I consistently have, which is why I try and keep everything in the day, I try and keep everything in the moment, and I try and deal with things now, mm-hmm. rather than me trying to you know think ahead and go right. I know that Ollie looks like she's 15, so she's probably going to want to start going to clubs in a couple of years. Rather than think that, you know, because that will is a thought that will keep you up at night. <laughs> um, just think about what's happening today and what can yeah. I help with today and how can I be of service to my children today and how what can I do that would make me a better dad today that I might be more equipped to be able to deal with what might come next. Yeah, so important. We talked a little bit there about lockdown. I've just sort of really thought that for you that was a big 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 change because you've gone from I mean we met in a nightclub in Mallorca <laughs> Magaluf if we're being specific right? <laughs> when, when I'm trying when I'm trying to sound posh I'm like yeah we're in Mallorca it doesn't it doesn't sound as Calvia as it's called Calvia now they changed it <laughs> Palmer <laughs> We all know where we were. So we met in, we met in that environment. And I think oh, I want to say eight plus years ago, because I don't think Arlo was born or cer- certainly I think Sophie may have been early stages pregnant, whatever. So it was before uh, Sophie was pregnant. Yeah, it was actually. I'm just now thinking back to some of those early photos. So you, yeah, maybe 10 years ago, 10 yeah. years, let's say. Um you were active. I mean, you used to have a residency, a weekly residency in this club. You were between Ibiza, you were between Mallorca, you were all over the world doing all sorts of different things. Lockdown comes, everything stops. What was that like for you? And now knowing your situation, you're now obviously a family, a father of three at this point. Yeah. What's, what was that like for you guys? I, to be honest, if I'm really honest, I needed to take a break from the gigs. I needed to take a break from working on the road as much as I was working. So I can look back at it now and I can go, there was a large amount of that side of it that was necessary. I would never have chosen to do it myself in that way. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the other thing for me is that all the way through lockdown, I was still working. You know, I, I finally started to, to, to get out of my own head and, and to develop my songwriting skills and my production. So I'm still working on that. Uh, I was still on the radio um, five days a week. And, you know, during that period, because of the broadcaster that I used to work for, it meant that I was classed as a key worker. So mm. I was still commuting to and from London every day to do the shows. You know, I was doing... At the start of it, I was starting to do live stream DJ sets from my studio here. So I was still working and I suppose the old, the old fear came back of make hay while the sun shines. Mm. So immediately, you know, the, the things that I had told myself initially were what a good dad needed, which is, you know, like say, keep the lights on, keep food in the fridge, make sure there's clothes in their back. Immediately I'm going, right, okay, so that's gone that, you know, the, 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 my primary earner has gone. Mm. What do I do? And, you know, it took me a while to really realize that I was, I was burning myself out during lockdown. Mm. Cause you know, 
the kids are homeschooling and I want to be present for the homeschooling and I'm then getting angry that I'm not going to be 100% present for the homeschooling because I've got to leave and go and, you know, do radio and then come back. But then I can't be angry because I've got to be really grateful that I've got this job. And to be honest, I am so grateful that I was able to be on air at that moment in point, at a moment in time, because it feels like the whole world was looking towards radio at that point, was looking towards something that was live and conversational that could give us that sense of normality. And I, if I hadn't have had that, I don't know where I would have ended up. But, you know, it's, it's all of this stuff. And I, I, I kind of, I got to a stage where I was on the radio and there was a, a kind of a wave of hate that came in. And some people had made some comments about my family online. I'd, I'd got some death threats into radio. I'd, you know, I'd got, I got quite, it was almost like it was a, out of nowhere, this kind of, this hate came out of nowhere. And I just, I thought I need to take a break. So, you know, I took a break and, you know, this kind of all coincided with around the time that the George Floyd situation happened with, with Black Lives Matter. And I had to take a really long, hard look at what I was doing as a parent in that moment in time and whether or not I was being a parent or whether I was being a bank, you know, whether I was being truly present. And like I say, I will always, always probably be too hard on myself. But, you know, it was at that point that I was like, I need to realign. I need to realign what my priorities are. I need to realign where I'm spending my energy. I need to realign how I can be of service to people because you can't pour from an empty cup. And for me in that point, it was an opportunity for me to really kind of strengthen my relationship with my kids. My kids didn't, the oldest two, you know, they didn't have the very best of time during the lockdown. Mm. Um, it affected them both differently. Um, Claire, you know, trying to be there for her. She was, again, she's the boss. <laughs> she was the one that was cool, calm and collected all the way through. It was me that was kind of going, ah, in large different amounts of ways. But, you know, I think we've come out of that and I've changed the way that I approach work, right. changed where I work. Mm -hmm. um, I've changed what my priorities are. Um, you know, it's almost like the other thing that I learned as a parent is, is the thing that they tell you when you get on planes. That, you know, in the event of an emergency, yeah. put your own mask on first and then you can put mask on, on your kids. You know, it's, it's, it's so important um, because, you know, for a period of time during the lockdown, I was the, the snapping dad that was overwhelmed. Yeah. And it was only when I realized I need to make these changes for myself and there is then reciprocal benefit for my family that, that things changed. And I think... You know, I've come out of lockdown more grateful, happier. Can't say healthier because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it's just the way life works. But, you know, it's, 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 it's changed my perspective. Just yeah. as being a dad changed my perspective on life when all three of my children were born and each one of them changed my perspective in a very different way. I think what happened during the lockdown has really changed my perspective on life. And I'm just so, so grateful that, that we were able to get through it as a family. I think that's the thing that stood out to me, particularly just, again, you, you see snippets of someone just from social media and online. You, you seem to really reinforce this gratitude 
message. I I feel like even I noticed that was kind of pouring out of you a lot over, you know, the recent months. What do you do then for yourself when you are in that moment where it's, you know, massively overwhelming and you do need to take a bit of a break? What does that look like in practical terms? Because again, you're a father of three, mm-hmm. you're a DJ, you're on the right. You, there's, I guess there's limited time now to be able to do that, but what does that downtime look like for you? Uh, you, you have to carve out the time. You have mm. to, you have to. Like I say, you can't pass on what you don't have. It's, mm. it's physically, mentally, spiritually impossible. So I, you know, I, I get help. I spend time um, working on myself. Um, mm. I spend time praying and meditating. I, I try and be as present as possible with, with, with what's in front of me. I try and be as present as possible as a dad. I try and help, you know, wherever possible, anybody else. Uh, that helps. Sometimes when, when you kind of get caught up in your own head, you get caught up in your own problems and things all of a sudden start to feel like they're a little bit too much. If I then try and help someone else in that moment, it helps me. And I think, you know, the key thing for me is as a father to try and teach my children the things that used to baffle me as a kid, you know, with the loneliness that I experienced as a kid, with the kind of rejection that I experienced as a kid, with the traumatic kind of things that I experienced as a kid, I kind of wish that I had someone in my life that could go, whoa, pause, take a breath, you know, think about it differently. My, my, you know, my daughter and my eldest son, or my only son, and my eldest daughter and my son are both old enough to kind of, you know, think about meditation, think about, yeah. you know, taking a couple of moments, counting to 10, taking a deep breath, you know, talking to them about trying to help other people, looking at their situations very differently. You know, for Ollie, since she's gone to secondary school, being able to have those conversations with her and try and hopefully teach her this kind of kit of tools that I've been able to learn over the last few years and give them to her as she's 11 so that hopefully, you know, she's, she's a little bit better equipped to deal with what's going to come next than, than I was at her age or at Ben's age or even, you know, Phoebe's age. Phoebe, for Phoebe, it's much more kind hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come <laughs> on, it, kind hands. But it starts there, doesn't it? You know, it's, we forget that those are, these are very formative years, each of your kids with their respective ages and what they're going through. I suppose the challenge actually is probably tailoring what they need to do based on on their age so that it's, you know, age appropriate. As you say, yeah. you're older to quite close in age. So a little bit easier, but yeah, it's just a, it's just a constant, it feels like a constant battle sometimes because you want to do everything to the best of your ability. But you but can't, but you can't, you can't, this, yeah. you can't, and you can't beat yourself up about it. Mm-hmm. You absolutely cannot. Because I, like I say, I, when I think back to my childhood, the moments that stick with me as the great moments that I had with my family were moments when people were present. Mm. And I definitely took for granted the fact that, you know, the, the, we had a few power cuts and times were hard, and, but there was always a tin of beans in the cupboard. I took that for granted, but those weren't the memories that I carried through. The memories that I carried through were the, were the times where, the, the, or the limited times where they would turn up to a performance or, mm. you know, there would, where I would be, you know, picked up or dropped off and taken to places and, and the support that I got. And, and, you know, those were the moments that stuck with me. So I have to remember that to go, 
I'm not failing as a parent if I'm present. Mm. I'm not failing as a parent if my kids know that if they can talk to me, they will talk to me. I'm not failing as a parent if I'm making an effort. It doesn't really matter whether or not it's win, lose or draw, because really, what are you trying to win? If I'm making an effort, then hopefully that's what will carry them through because that's what I remember from my childhood. And even talking to Claire about her childhood and, and talking to you know other people, having conversations with people, you know, when you think back to your childhood, you don't necessarily, especially around parenting and family and, and, and that kind of stuff, you remember moments. Yeah. You know, you'll remember when that book was read to you or why that certain story is an important story. You'll remember, for me, where, who gave you that seven inch piece of vinyl? Mm. Where, you know, you were introduced to that song? Who gave you that tape? You know, those were the moments that I cherished. And I have to almost bring myself back to, rather than beating myself up as a father and going, well, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing the other, because that's very easy. If I remain grateful, then hopefully my perspective continued, can continue to be where it is now. I think that's summed up perfectly <laughs> because, you know, there's, there's genuinely not much more I can add to that. It's, it's so, you know, just so profound. And I think I've thought a lot about that as well because we've had the opportunity to experience some amazing, for us at the moment, it's, it's travel, it's holidays, it's those moments. And I think the kids will always remember those. But even within those moments, I always try to do something with each of the kids that I hope they really treasure. So it's not about, oh, we went on holiday to Dubai. It's, we did that in Dubai. I remember doing that with dad in Dubai or, you know, wherever we may have been in, in the world and, and gone through those things. Because yeah, it will stick. And as you said, when I look back and I recollect, I, I think about certain moments that I remember very fondly, you know, with, with, with my parents. So work's back up and running. The world is looking somewhat more positive than it has over the, over the, the <laughs> last couple of years. Um, how are you feeling now about, about things, you know, the, with the balance that you now have um, with all, of, all, of, all that you have going on? I can only answer for how I feel right now. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm just really happy. I'm really grateful. Um, you know, in, in, in this moment with, with work, you know, we've, we've just had the, the radio listenership figures come through and we, we've, we've taken a station that was launched during lockdown from zero to 800,000 listeners, which from a professional point of view is just unbelievable. You know, mm, with, with, I, I, I finally got out of my own way and I finally started to put out music that I was working on and songs that I was writing and, and you know, that's being successful and it continues to grow. With the live side of things, I've actively taken the lessons that I learned during lockdown and I'm putting them into play. So there's a lot more no's than there are yeses. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this summer, I'm going to be more present at home. You know, I'm going to be more present with, with the family. You know, my son has just been able to kind of, he's got himself a massive part in, in, uh, um, a stage production oh, is amazing. I have to 
choose my words carefully because there's a lot of stuff that I'm not sure what I can and can't say and I put a post up on my socials and I got into trouble for it so that post disappeared but if you saw it while it was up for the couple of hours then you might know what I'm talking about but yeah that's going to impact on the family in a really positive way over over summer and right now I'm just so grateful I first of all I'm grateful that I've got the family that I've got because it literally is better than I could have ever dreamed Mm. you know the, the the biggest privilege that I've ever had is to be a dad you know to 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 be trusted to look after for a period of time these three amazing souls that you know that are just they teach me something brand new every day and to have a partner beside me who truly loves me unconditionally and wants better for me than I even want for myself Mm. And knowing that that feeling is mutual, it's impossible for me to not feel anything other than happy right now. Amazing. I love that. And it comes, uh, yeah, as I say, it, I, I just, I would look at people's, I look at what they do online and I just sometimes go just that little bit below the words, you know, read between the lines and just go, <laughs> There's, 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 that's real. You know, we, we can all put things out there. We can all say things, but I don't know when you write stuff or when you talk about certain things, it just, for me, it just feels so, so genuine. So when you say that to me, I'm like, okay, I get it because I know that you've, and again, you've been open, you've spoken about life and a time that things haven't been happy and, you know, things haven't gone very well and where you've been in your life, those dark places. So to hear now that you've, in this moment, you're at that in that place of of happiness and peace is is incredible to incredible to hear. That's that's the thing I keep saying it, but it's kind of almost my mantra at the moment is that I didn't come this far to just come this far. Mm. Like I have, I've been through a lot, and a lot of it isn't for public consumption. You know, not everything as much, is. No, mm. absolutely, and 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 as much as you know, I I am grateful to be a public figure on the radio. I'm grateful to be a public figure as an artist and a producer. I'm grateful to be a public figure as a DJ and to have done the bits of telly and whatever that I've done over 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 the years. There's certain things that you know that I might never talk about that you know were moments in my life that were the worst. But I can just ha- safely hand on heart say I've been in hell. I've mm. seen the worst that it possibly could be and I'm here now and that's not because of anything that I've done that's just because of just because of how things tend to work out you know I saw this Tom Hanks kind of clip doing the rounds the other day of him talking about you know a lesson that he wishes that he learned younger that he's you know sharing with his kids and he says this too shall pass and it's true this too mm. shall pass. You know, if you are in the worst possible moment, it might be that, you know, you, you've, you've got kids and, and they're not going through a good space. You're not, they're not doing, you know, whatever it may be, it will pass. It might be that, you know, everything is great and it's fantastic. Or, you know, for, for a lot of people pre-lockdown, you're smashing it out the targets. You've, you know, you're earning the cash and this too shall pass. And if you have that attitude of gratitude of just being grateful for wherever it is that you are, I think especially as a dad, I'm hoping that it gives my kids that grounding that hopefully means that whatever life throws at them as they get older, as they grow up, that they realize that, you know, 
that they can survive it, that it will be okay. And I think, you know, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a, you're a, you're a parent or you're a dad and you, things aren't going as well as they should be and, you know, we are living in very, very difficult times, just try and tap into the support network that potentially could be around you that you might not have tapped into. There's no, there is no shame in asking for help at all in any way, shape or form. And just know that you didn't come this far to just come this far. Yeah. So, so, so true. So very, very true. I feel like you've not only given us more of an insight into what life is like as a father, I feel like you've given us some life lessons. <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's been some strong, it's not very often where I don't have anything else to say or to add. And you, you've given me a couple of those moments in this conversation. So I have to say thank you for that because I, I genuinely believe that, you know, people listening to this are going to just, just take a step back and just go, actually, you know what? That makes, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I mean, for one, I'm I'm happy to see that you're in this space now. I'm happy to see that you are, you know, enjoying that fatherhood journey. I think your your kids are at amazing ages, and you've got some some challenging times ahead, obviously, but also oh, some, yes. <laughs> <laughs> obviously some some very exciting uh, times also to you know to to come. And I think that's the way that you you and Claire are handling that is 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 to be commended. I want to, as I do with all my guests. I want to end this podcast with a couple of questions for you. The first question, and we kind of keep this diary theme going. Um, if you were to look back on your time as a father, as a series of diary entries, is there a moment or any moments that stand out to you? <laughs> <laughs> um, the FaceTime birth of Phoebe. <laughs> I almost, I almost didn't bring it up. We we skipped Phoebe's, we skipped Phoebe's birth, and I was thinking, damn, I didn't get the chance to grill him about it. Tell us about it. Um, so I, I, um, I went over to Austria to DJ at a festival called Snowbombing. Um, both Olivia, both Ollie and Ben were were late uh, as as children. You know, they were late late births you know Claire went overturned with both of them there you go I finally stumbled on the right way to, to, to describe it so Claire went overturned with both Ollie and Ben um, so this festival in Austria was one that I'd played numerous times in the past um, you know it was a place where I'd made loads of real quite strong connections within the music industry and just had some great times so the offer came in and it was two weeks before Phoebe was due to be born so we're thinking, it's going to be fine. We're having renovations done in the house. Uh, I'll go over to Austria. I'll come back. We'll still, we'll still probably be waiting another month before Phoebe's due to be born. Uh, turns out I went over to Austria. I played. Uh, went for dinner with Jax Jones. Went back to my hotel room. Claire's having contractions. And luckily, um, Claire, Claire's sister was staying over with us. Um, much love to Beth, um, <laughs> because Beth saw parts of her sister that she's not supposed to see, because she was the one that was holding the FaceTime camera, and I uh, I was FaceTimed into to Phoebe's birth. There was two midwives around. Um, Ollie and Ben were both asleep in their beds, and they slept through the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> and I was on on the phone being FaceTimed into Phoebe's birth, and you know I. 
I, I, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a moment for the diary, let's be honest. That's one that watching you... your wife give birth on FaceTime. <laughs> that's one that you will not be able to forget for sure. Um, how did you feel in that moment when all of that was going on? Um, helpless. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't, I wasn't there. I, I, if I'm honest, I felt really disappointed that I wasn't there. And, you know, that was for me, just one of the catalysts of me really kind of having to look at the way that I was living, living my life at that moment in time. Yeah. I, it was I like, you know what? Feeling. Yeah. Your, your, pri my priorities were off. My priorities were off. And, you know, it's funny because I'd got big festival bookings that I was due to do before both um, Ollie and Ben were, were born, but I'd pulled out of them. I remember I was due to play Exit Festival in Serbia when Ollie was born and had to pull out and, you know, another big festival booking before Ben was born and pulled out because I was like, no, I'm going to be there. But, you know, I had to really, really, really take a long, hard look at myself at that point. And I, you know, flew home as quickly as I could. Got congratulations from Craig David because Craig was there. And, you know, it's like I heard I heard you giving birth. My tour manager was there, and yeah, yes, yeah, you know, Claire's giving birth. Phoebe's born, um, and then you know I came home from from snow bombing and, and held Phoebe in my arms for the first time, and just kind of looked at it and I just thought, in that moment, it was like, no, my life has to change now. Mm. My perspective has to change. My life has to change, and you know that was for me the the biggest catalyst towards me changing my attitude towards life to the one that I've got now. Yeah. And that started, you know, when 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 she was born in 2018. And all because FaceTime. FaceTime birth. <laughs> I don't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say nobody, if anyone, any dads are out there listening, don't go booking yourselves holidays and thinking, oh, we can no. do it over FaceTime. <laughs> <laughs> don't it leave. Won't. You gotta be there. Even if you're not in the, the even if you're not in the room, you just gotta be there. Just it's gotta horrible. be Got to be around. Okay. And then the second question is, are there any dates in the diary that you're looking forward to this year? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I'm really, really, I'm really looking forward to going to watch my son on a professional theatre stage at the age of nine. Mm. You know, he's, he's, he's a much better actor than I ever was, <laughs> which is an amazing thing. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to with Ollie just kind of, you know, her 12th birthday, you know, it's, it's, it's a big milestone. I think, you know, a lot of people put a lot of weight on the 13th because that's, mm. that's it. You're a teenager, but you know, this is, this is kind of the last year that she's going to enter into with her being a child. So I'm really looking forward to that. And with Phoebe, there's not really kind of any specific things in, in, in the future that I'm specifically looking forward to, but she is just such a character. She's going to come out with something. I know every day she comes out with something that just floors everybody in the house. She's the boss. I say that Claire's the boss. Phoebe's the boss. <laughs> Phoebe's the, the boss in the house. So yeah. In terms of diary entries, that's, that's it. But just, yeah, I suppose for me, keeping it in the moment, keeping it in the day, I'm looking forward to when I come home from work tonight and I can say hello to all of the kids and give them all kisses goodnight. Amazing. And what an amazing way to end it. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. And as I say, I think so many people are going to really, really enjoy listening to this. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for asking me. And, and thank you for, for building this platform. It's a, a much needed platform. <laughs>